Human history, like a river, will keep moving forward with moments of both calm waters and huge waves. We have before us the opportunity to forge a new world order. This is multipolarity, charting the rise of the new multipolar world order. Coming up this week, the Bank of England is at risk of going broke and it wants both a bailout from the taxpayer and the ability to raise taxes all of its own. Squeeze me, baking powder? We'll be digging into the modern model of central bank independence the B of E represents and asking whether the big brains of monetary policy have actually invented much more than a self-licking ice cream cone. Yankee go home. That's the subtext of Viktor Orban's latest speech. Orban is often ahead of the curve when it comes to European affairs. So has Big Vic said the quiet part out loud? As the Ukraine conflict runs out of gas, is there a new mood stalking the continent? Finally, we'll be presenting our new weekly roundup of Middle Eastern regional politics. As the Israel-Gaza conflict staggers on into a tentative truce, how long can it stay in the deep freeze? But first, Bailey's on ice. The Bank of England has, it's been, I mean, some might say it's been up to no good over the past while. It's experienced a lot of financial turmoil on its own balance sheets, as it were, on its own portfolio. This is a bit of a self-inflicted wound. A lot of people's portfolios aren't doing as well as they used to. Bond prices have famously crashed out. Equities haven't done so well. And those two things are supposed to move inversely rather than together. Anyone who has a portfolio, a kind of standard pension portfolio, will know exactly what this means. It's not good. The Bank of England has a big fat portfolio too, and it's basically how it funds itself. The Bank of England, as people might know, was made independent in 1998. And since it's independent, it doesn't just get a handout from the government to fund itself like a normal department or ministry would. Um, And so it funds itself basically, or it has funded itself until recently, with a portfolio a portfolio of assets that are sort of uh, donated or given on loan, I'm not sure what the exact arrangement is, by various regulated entities. And so the Bank of England's not happy about this because this is their, I mean, let's call a spade a spade, this is their gravy train. This is what allows them to pay themselves. I wouldn't say anyone at the Bank of England is taking extortionate amounts of money or crazy banker bonuses or anything, but being quasi-civil servants, they always like having a new budget to investigate some new innovative idea or boondoggle, whatever you think uh, these guys often look into. So there's been turmoil in their portfolio, and there's been murmurings. First of all, they have requested the ability, and they've had it confirmed as far as I know, to stop using this portfolio mechanism, which they say is uncertain and difficult to plan our expenditure when our income is reliant on a portfolio, to which I would respond, welcome to being a pensioner or anyone who lives on fixed income or a charity or anything else, or even a university, anything with a with that kind of a system. So the Bank of England doesn't like that system, which I guess, in theory, since it's regulating financial markets, it should be promoting because that's what financial markets do. But it now doesn't really like that anymore because the market's moved against them. And so uh, they want a simpler uh, mechanism of of a bank levy where they just uh, charge a straight levy on the banks that are regulated. Now that looks, some people have said, suspiciously like a tax. And of course, the government's supposed to tax. Uh, Ultimately, taxation power lies in Britain with the king and his government. So that's a little bit funny in and of itself. The bank are trying to play it down that it's not really a tax, but it it sort of is a tax. So that's the first step. And then the second step is that there's been murmurings that the Bank of England may end up receiving a bailout. First of all, there does appear to have been transfers from the Treasury to the bank. The number that I saw was £9.7 billion was sent. Now, that's quite a lot if you consider that I think the autumn statement tax cut, correct me if I'm wrong, was about double that. So it's quite a lot. So they've already received that. And that, as far as I understand it, is to plug a funding gap in their operations. That's to pay salaries and to keep the lights on and to keep coffee in the coffee maker, I suppose. But the other problem is that they've obviously had their portfolio has kind of collapsed. And they are currently saying that they will not require a bailout on their portfolio, which will be an enormous amount of money, 
But some are speculating that with the mission creep that we're already seeing, we might get there. So that's kind of where we are with the bank. I think there's a broader discussion to be had about what this this amount of power concentrating on them means. And also the discussion that needs to be had is why have they gone broke and is it due to their quantitative easing program? Which it is, short answer, but perhaps we can talk more about that. Yeah, I think that this looks like, insofar as quantitative easing is concerned, I think this looks like a problem for a series of central banks. They, quantitative easing was never to drive down interest rates, i.e. the profits that people could make on bonds. And at the same time, that mechanically and uh, by necessity drove up the cost. So as they were buying bonds in vast quantities, they were buying them at quite a high cost. And now the real market value of those has fallen quite significantly because interest rates have increased. The reverse has happened. One thing I find extremely interesting about this is it's, I think you mentioned in your article on Unheard on this, is that it might involve the Bank of England getting involved in things like green policy. And I know there's also been talk in Europe about the ECB accepting so-called green bonds, which are like a corporate bond or, or, or a sovereign bond. It's a kind of a debt security instrument. But they have characteristics that make them green. Perhaps they're loans specifically designed to build out renewable energy, for example, or loans specifically designed for a company to to improve its energy efficiency. Okay, and therefore they become green bonds. And there's quite a lot of effort to make green bonds acceptable as bank, as central bank collateral. And I think this is another area in which central banks are getting involved in policy. And really it's quite strange. It's like the expanding empire of these kind of unelected and not really directly democratically accountable technocratical institutions into the realm of public policy. And it's, it's not just central banks where this is happening. It's happening all over the place. Britain at the moment, for those who don't know, is having you know issues with putting in place policy to deal with the number of small boats that are crossing the English Channel chock full of asylum seekers. And... You know, it's incredibly hard to do that because uh, the final say on whether we can do these policies really sits in a court in Strasbourg, the European Court of Human Rights, which is there to interpret and enforce the European Convention on Human Rights. It's another not democratically elected institution that's getting involved in de facto getting involved in public policy because of its de jure hold over some of the higher reaches of the law. And I think this is the Bank of England getting involved in taxation, as you say, whether it's called a levy or taxation, it it makes no difference. Or whether they get involved in other things like a green policy or environmental policy. Again, it's the kind of the the slow expansion uh, of these organizations into areas which used to be really the sole purvey of democratically elected institutions or sovereign institutions. I think it's worth thinking about the two things at once, right? Because I think you've kind of just equated their their bank levy system, which does look like a tax, with general overexpansion into green and so on. And just to clarify, the Bank of England currently are committed to uh, integrating net zero principles into their corporate bond purchasing scheme, which I assume means that they favor... ESG-rated bonds over non-ESG-rated bonds. They are already there. It's not as ra- as radical as the ECB actual green bond buying program, which blurs the line between fiscal and monetary policy, another violation of cent- independent central bank rules, but it, it is there. But the tax is, is more important in a sense, because as you said, all these government bureaucracies tend to, if they're allowed to run away with it, overreach and overexpand and come up with wacky ideas and all that. The issue is the taxation thing, right? So taxation, civil wars are fought over taxation power in the past. Most countries' constitutional frameworks are set up 
in line with taxation powers. I mean, Parliament it was originally about raising taxes. The American Revolution is about who's allowed to tax. Taxation is a core power of government. It always has been. It has a deep history. And the, the settlement in this country is that the Treasury has the power to tax. And then when the Treasury taxes, some of that goes into a budget for all the ministries, for all the civil servants. And it gets parceled out. And you ask, you, you, you get the treasury to sign off on your wacky project. I'm being a bit unfair about civil servants. I'm well aware that they do plenty of useful things. But the, the stereotype of coming up with wacky project, projects sometimes is true. And everybody knows it. The Ministry of Silly Walks, the old Monty Python joke. The problem here is that the bank is taking on quasi or complete taxation capabilities and then it, it, there's no oversight on the bank, really. It can expand into any anywhere at once. Green is one. They've already greened their corporate bond purchasing scheme. Central bank digital currency is another. This is not a neutral uh, entity. There's a lot of debate about whether a central bank digital currency is good for a country or bad for a country. There's also a lot of evidence that it hasn't worked in other countries. And finally, there's a suspicion among some people who are even more cynical that it's all a load of PR and nonsense, that it's advertising, and, and that the banks just bought into this. So I think it's worth taking a step back here of what central banks are supposed to do and why they have independence. Because the independence was granted fairly recently. As I said, 1998, in this country under new labor. And the reason, so prior to the central bank in this country, and this is the case in most countries, prior to the central bank, the Bank of England not having independence, it was housed within the treasury. It was one department in the treasury among others, and it set interest rates and did a few other things, mainly set interest rates. And oh, and uh, set interest rates, a couple other things, and backstop banks, made sure that banks had sufficient liquidity and still performs those roles. The rationale for making it independent in 1998, and of course, it's not the only independent central bank. Most central banks now are independent, in the Western world at least. The rationale was that economists, after 100 years of work or however long we want to think about it, had finally cracked the code and figured out a scientific way to manage the economy using monetary policy, using interest rate control. Now, a lot of people were skeptical of this, even at the time. This was a very large claim that macroeconomists were making, that they had actually solved macroeconomic management as a scientific question. That aside, that was the assumption on which central bank independence was based. Central bank independence was then thought of as something like an engineering problem. If you build a bridge, you let the engineer build the bridge. You give them the independence to do so. You don't want a politician telling an, uh, an engineer how to build a bridge. Rationale was the same for central banks. Now, I would argue that the absolute chaos we've seen with monetary policy since and the massive disagreements among economists about a variety of monetary policy interventions, not least of which quantitative easing, show that this isn't an objective field. But that was the rationale. Now, when you go into green net zero corporate bond purchasing, that's a political issue. When you go into central bank digital currency, political issue. These are clearly not in line with the central bank's initial rationalization for independence. And then we go back to QE, because as we've said, as you said, the QE program, the unwinding of the QE program, is what's led the Bank of England to go broke. And that's why they're asking for money, and that's why they're asking for the capacity to levy, to, to tax, to put a bank levy on. Their own policy has created this. Now, some might say... That is that the blow up of the central bank's portfolio and the blow up of lots of people's portfolios is proof that the quantitative easing program was dangerous and created asset market bubbles and that the people who undertook it didn't have a plan to unwind it. And yet, rather than having that debate, what we're actually seeing is that the failure of the QE program, direct failure insofar as it's hit the central bank's portfolio, is actually giving the central bank more power because they're claiming it's a crisis and they need the power to tax and so on. So it's a really, I mean, I called it in the article, I said that we're building the biggest self-licking ice cream cone the country's ever seen on Threadneedle Street. And I think that's basically the case. And frankly, the last thing I'd say about it is, I think the Bank of England, the central bankers there, 
are very good at covering their tracks and what they're doing and going up in front of treasury slacks and so on and speaking in jargon that no one can understand to to often very poorly informed politicians but and and often i think that they're doing that for the common good this economist doesn't understand monetary policy so i'll stroke his ego a little bit and we'll go back and figure out monetary policy i think a lot of people on the monetary policy committee and at the bank of england are actually honest economists a lot of them and i really hope that they they look at this and they say is this a perverse incentive structure that we've set up for ourselves can we look in the mirror and genuinely to ourselves defend this expansion of power this crisis that's uh, uh, grown out of a crisis that we ourselves created with qe and our expansion way past our independence mandate into these other regions i really think they, there needs to be some soul searching at the bank i think these are really important points because i don't think they're just valid for the bank of england but i think they're valid for the western society but i mean certainly british society but i think it's fair to say Western society as a whole. And not only that, I think that it fits very well with one of the key secular themes that runs through a lot of our work here at Multipolarity, but also the kind of Western socio-political outlook at the moment, which is essentially technocrats versus uh, populists. So what do I mean by that? In the late 1970s, especially from the 1990s, an idea took hold that Western societies would be better run, not as straight-up democracies or or, or straight-up kind of constitutional uh, monarchies or or republics, but uh, as stakeholder democracies. And it was this idea that the demos, the the individual people who vote, were just essentially one of many stakeholders within a society, and all of the stakeholders needed to have a say. And in fact, it would improve governance if they would. And the other stakeholders were people like academics in universities, large corporations, civil servants, uh, sectoral experts, people from the banking sector and, and big finance. And by giving all of these people more of a say over public policy, it would create an improved public policy, and that would lead to better and richer and more stable societies. And certainly once New Labour, the Labour Party under Tony Blair, were elected in 1997, that kind of idea of stakeholder democracy really took root in Britain. And actually, a a lot, if you go back now and look, a lot of New Labour's legislation under the first two Blair ministries, the first two Blair administrations, as the Americans would say, did indeed involve efforts to move Britain towards a stakeholder democracy. I, I, I mentioned Earlier on, the European Convention of Human Rights, Tony Blair enshrined that in law in 1998 through the Human Rights Act. Uh, Gordon Brown, as Chancellor of the Exchequer, made the Bank of England independent. We also went further into the single into the EU, especially in the early 90s with the single market, which, in the same way that the Bank of England took monetary policy out of the, gov- the democratically elected government's hands and put it into non-democratically accountable technocrats. So the single market did the same with a lot of industrial policy and fiscal policy. You couldn't do state aid and a whole range of other things. And there were, there were a lot of these kind of things that came in. And really, the rise of popula- populism is, a se- is best looked at, in my view, is kind of an effort to bring all of these things back onto the table for political discussion okay, we've kind of removed migration from the discussion because of membership of the European Union. Okay, populism says, let's leave the EU so that we can bring it back onto the table. We've removed whether we can, we have an obligation to to, to keep anybody who turns up on our southern coast in Britain. Populists would say, okay, let's bring it back into the discussion uh, by leaving the European Convention of Human Rights. Um, Populists would say there's a debate to be had. If you listen to populists, they're not impressed with quantitative easing. They're not impressed with what the independent Bank of England has done. Um, They're not impressed with the European single market and its its mechanisms and its restrictions. I think this it's really important to understand this story about the Bank of England because it's really emblematic, a kind of avatar, if you like, for a lot of the conflict or, or, or one of the two main currents 
that are going through Western society at the moment. And if multipolarity is about anything, it's about the changing world order. And that doesn't just mean the way that states interact with one another. It also means the way that states are run internally. The only thing I'd very quickly add to that is if calling the Bank of England to account on behalf of their own charter of independence, which is only supposed to be about neutrally setting monetary policy to steer the economy for full employment and low inflation. If just highlighting that has become the work of populists, then the situation we're in is much worse than people think. New Hungarian phrase book. Viktor Orban has been in the press again of late, This time he's made a speech in which he said that current European leaders are far worse than their predecessors and that Europe would be much better off uh, without the presence of the United States. Obviously, that made a big splash, but I think it's worth going into his speech in a bit more depth because whatever one thinks of Mr. Orban's uh, domestic political policies, I I think Everybody or or, or most uh, honest people would admit that he's an extremely shrewd political operator and a very interesting thinker when it comes to uh, matters strategic and foreign policy. Viktor Orban gave a speech. He was invited by the Weltwash, might be pronouncing that incorrectly, but that's a German language Swiss magazine of uh, political current affairs. It was established in uh, 1933. And Orban was invited for the 90th uh, birthday party. And he gave a speech which I think is far more interesting than some of the headlines might have said, uh, might have suggested. So what did Viktor Orban say? Basically, he, he Orban made a, a, a quite detailed and, and, and logically consistent and very interesting argument. He said that the Second World War destroyed Europe or, or, or Europe destroyed itself during the Second World War. And it ended up, after this destruction, occupied by two outside powers. One was the Soviet Union, which occupied Eastern Europe, and one was the United States, which essentially occupied Western Europe. Now, Orban argued that Soviet occupation was far worse than American occupation, which I think many of us would agree with. He said Soviet occupation involved, and I quote, dictatorship, inhumanity, cruelty, economic backwardness, intellectual hopelessness, and impoverishment. However, he he said the US still dominated, but it it, it did so to the great benefit of Western Europe. It it, it involved a Marshall Plan, which helped lift Western Europe off the the rocky shoals of bankruptcy. And they also didn't take a kind of a dictatorial, blunt force power approach to dominating Western Europe in the way the Soviets did the East. Instead, what the Americans did was they gained footholds in the decision-making institutions and in the cultural space. And that stood in stark contrast with the Soviet Union, which, as I said, essentially used dictatorial, blunt force power. And he argued that what that allowed Western Europe to do was it allowed space for Western European leaders to think very seriously about where what Western Europe would be Because Western Europe is unique, argues Orban. He said it can't ever replicate the US kind of culture and economic system. And these leaders, because of the way that the US kind of enforced hegemony over Western Europe, had space to think about where Europe would sit in a world that was dominated by the US. And he said that great European statesmen, of whom he named Schumann, Adenauer, and de Gaulle, did actually think of this and and did actually produce a suitable solution, which Orban calls Christian democracy. The problem, Orban says, is that after the Soviet Union collapsed, all of the Soviet Union's hard power essentially disappeared like a, a, a tide rushing out and leaving only flat sand. There was nothing left of the Soviet Union. But when that happened, the US didn't vacate its dominant position within the European cultural space, and it didn't vacate its dominant position within the European uh, decision-making centers. And at the same time, the US ideology switched to being one of uh, liberal progressivism, and it spent a lot of time converting Europeans to this new creed 
of liberal progressivism. And what that's meant is that Europe's ended up just going along with kind of this alien culture of liberal progressivism. And it's left no space whatsoever for European leaders to kind of imagine their position anew in the post-Cold War world. They can only think of themselves as a kind of an American appendage or within this kind of liberal progressive empire. And he said that it's led to disaster. It's led to Europe kind of chasing America all over the world in America's foolish mission to remake the entire world in America's image. And one of the examples he gives is Ukraine. He said that it's entirely possible that in 2024, the Americans elect a president who is far less interested in Ukraine and wants to kind of leave Ukraine in terms of American military and economic aid. And he said that would leave Europe with an awful mess. He says the conflict there is extremely difficult to resolve. It might be beyond anybody's ability to resolve now. And Europe, because of its economic woes, in part caused by the Ukraine-Russia war, is in no financial position to prop up Ukraine. So he said this fact that the US hasn't left Europe and it still occupies uh, to a great degree the kind of the cultural space and decision-making centers has left Europe bereft of great strategic thinkers, of great statesmen, and it's left it following the US around to quite disastrous ends. And I personally think that's a really interesting way of looking at Europe's current predicament. And it's one of the better arguments I've heard so far for Europe to gain far more strategic autonomy away from the US. Yeah, so I think you've kind of hinted at why this speech came when it came. I think one thing to say is, although Orban is often classified as a pariah. I think he's a very, as you say, shrewd operator. And I think that he's saying this right now in public because a lot of people are saying it in private. That's what Orban often does. It's everyone thinks that the Hungarian government's this radical right-wing government. But a lot of the time, Orban's main crime is saying the the quiet part out loud. And I think this might be one of those instances. Now, some of that is due to what you said. It's becoming increasingly clear that the Ukraine war has had incredibly deleterious effects on the European economy. And it's also become increasingly clear that for America, this wasn't a total commitment war. This was another conflict that they were willing to stand behind until it wasn't convenient anymore. And it's it's only been 18 months. This hasn't been an incredibly long war And already the Americans are making noises about stepping away and leaving Europe with the mess. This was all pretty predictable, I'd say. But And that's kind of what Orban's getting at. But I'll say that there might be another angle to this that people not as familiar with Hungarian internal politics aren't aware of. There's been terrible conflict between the Hungarians and the Americans since Joe Biden was elected president. And this conflict has basically come about because the Biden administration appointed a, an ambassador to Hungary called David Pressman, who is, I won't say David Pressman is a political activist, but he seems to want to marry the role of diplomat and political activist. And this has created a really bad relationship between the United States and Hungary since Joe Biden was elected. Prior to Joe Biden's election, The relationship, as far as I understand it, was quite good. There is a Politico article that uh, focused on this from obviously a very pro-State Department point of view in November last year. And I just want to go through some of the things in this to just give a sense. The article starts out with the journalist drives down Budapest, the Budapest streets with Pressman, the ambassador. And Pressman points out these signs that have been put up by the Hungarian government saying they're bombs. And it says the Brussels sanctions are ruining us. And Pressman points this out as some sort of a hostile attack by the Hungarian government on the United States. But of course, at least in the opinion of this podcast, and I would say this article was written in November 2022, it is now November 2023. And I think the mainstream opinion is the sanctions have been a disaster. I think this was once again a situation of the Hungarians, the Orban government, saying the quiet part out loud. This got 
worse and worse over time, especially since the Ukraine war. And eventually, the US embassy started putting out tweets attacking Hungary. So the real offensive tweet that came out, um, actually, I, I don't have the tweet here, but the quote version of the tweet that the ambassador gave Politico is he said, I'm concerned when I see missiles flying from Moscow into children's uh, playgrounds in Kiev and see the foreign minister of Hungary flying into Moscow to do Facebook live conferences from Gazprom headquarters. It's not really the job of a diplomat. The job of a diplomat is not to park yourself in another country and start criticizing the government. That's the job of a political activist, at best. I'm not even sure if it should be the job of foreigners in general. You're being hosted there and so on. But at best, that would be a foreign political activist coming in and criticizing the government domestically. Doing that through the diplomatic mission of your country is very unusual. It's a very unusual thing to do. Politico reports that after these spats, the Hungarian newspapers referred to David Pressman's style of diplomacy as quote-unquote clown diplomacy. And although that's kind of, that's pretty sharp, it's pretty nasty, but is it really wrong? I mean, as a diplomat, for people who don't really understand how diplomacy works, if you're a diplomat in a foreign country, it doesn't really matter if your country has good relations or bad relations. You should really be behaving the same either way. You should be somewhat deferential to the country that you're in. You should be polite. You should probably not criticize domestic policies. You can speak out in public about conflicts between bilateral conflicts between your two countries. Sure, you can do that. But in interfering in the domestic politics is not usually okay. Um, and the whole role of a diplomat, you see, this is important. It's not just a matter of good manners. The whole role of a diplomat is so that you can solve problems between your country and another country. So if you go around the whole time criticizing the government and so on, and a problem arises between your two countries, the relationship will be poisoned and you won't be there to solve a problem. And it's a simple trade-off here. How much of a difference are you making if you go and you do what one newspaper called clown diplomacy, where you're attacking the country, you're not making any difference. No one's listening to you. You just become a figure of hate. And then something happens and lo and behold, you can't solve it. And actually something has happened that Sweden wants to accede to NATO and the two countries that are skeptical of this are Turkey and Hungary. And so they burn their, the, the US embassy, as far as I understand it, burn their cards here. So that Orban speech, I think, should also be read in that specific relationship. Now, of course, the two things are very much so related. Orban is saying this liberal idea, this liberal progressive idea is taking over Europe and no one can discuss anything else. And it's very foreign to our culture and so on. And what he's also complaining about is the American diplomatic mission in his own country since the Biden administration has taken over. So I would read this, and I wouldn't just read this as a purely Hungarian-American spat. I think, again, they're saying the quiet part out loud. A lot of countries are starting to feel this way. Think about Saudi Arabia. We talk, talk about it all the time, the Jamal Khashoggi incident, and how that's poisoned relationships, the relationship between the Saudis and the American, that seems to come from the same place. So I just say, I think Hungary is a microcosm where this conflict is playing out. And I think some of the American progressive liberals would like to say that it's just a conflict between the US and Hungary. But I think what Orban is communicating in this speech is that a lot of people are starting to think this way. Yeah, I think there's two things to deal with here. The first is your point about the general professionalism of American, the American diplomatic corps. And the second is more related to the speech itself and saying the quiet part loud. On the first point, the degree of professionalism of the US diplomatic corps, it's really gone down the toilet and it has, not to put too fine a point on it, <laughs> it's gone down the toilet and it has been circling the drain. It has been circling the U-bend for quite a few years now. I remember way back when Michael McFall, who is now for some reason, an academic and a um, prominent commentator, especially on the Russia-Ukraine war. He, he used to be ambassador to Moscow, and he was very much within that kind of diplomatic activist uh, role. I think pretty much the first thing he did when he got off the plane in Moscow was go visit the kind of the anti-Putin 
opposition here and he maintained uh, very good relationships with them. And we see in, in, in countries that, I guess, like Russia and like Hungary, which are more conservative, U.S. embassies all of the time flying the pride flag during Pride Month, deliberately trying to mock the conservative government in that specific country for not being fully bought into the LGBTQ plus uh, ideology. Now, I'm not saying... That's a good. That's a good thing or a bad thing to be conservative and not be brought into that. But all I'm saying is that it seems to me infantile to be trying to rub rub a country's noses in it when you're meant to be a diplomatic mission. And like you say, what you really need to be there for are high level negotiations and to maintain good relations between the two countries, so that during times of crisis or when, for instance, you want to deal with each other, a big free trade deal or a big defense deal or whatever, you've got good relations there in the country who can deal with this sort of thing. That's the whole point. I, I mean, ambassadors are plenty potentiary, right? The, I hope I've pronounced that correctly. Yeah, not a Latin scholar, but it literally means that they are the, the kind of like the country's authority when the uh, head of government isn't there. You know, that's what they're there for. They're not there to go around mocking the country. I mean, we saw with, was it Rahm Emanuel, who's now, he's moved from President Obama's chief of staff to mayor of Chicago, and now he's ambassador to Japan. And he recently had to be told by the Japanese to stop shitposting anti-Chinese things on Twitter, right? This is really poor for, I mean, this is just, I mean, whatever you think about the rights and wrongs of the US position toward China, Whatever you think about the rights and wrongs of Orban's domestic policy and how pro-EU he is and how friendly with Russia he is, it's just unprofessional. It just makes you look infantile, stupid, petty, and not very good at your job, essentially. Not very indecorous, I would say. Now, the second point with regard to Orban's speeches, on multipolarity, we've talked a lot about the battle in Europe that's that that's waging at the moment between the autonomists, those people like Mr. Orban who want greater strategic autonomy, and indeed traditionally Emmanuel Macron as well, the kind of the Atlanticists, and the Atlanticists would be people like the German government and especially the Green Party coalition partners within the German government, Annalena Baerbock, one of our favourites, but also. Also, a lot of other countries in Europe as well, Atlanticists, they believe not in greater European strategic autonomy, but they believe that Europe is always strongest when it's acting in conjunction with America. And in real terms, that essentially means following America's strategic lead. And there is a real war at the moment. And I think one of the things that this speech does very well, in fact, is it provides something of an intellectual foundation for the autonomists to be going forward with. I think in many ways, this speech by Mr. Orban can be compared with Tony Blair's Tony Blair's 1999 Chicago speech. I think it was April 1999, but I'd have to look it up, which was on the eve of the uh, Serbia-Kosovo war, in which essentially Tony Blair made the argument for liberal universalism, for maybe for neoconservatism, but more liberal interventionism and, 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 and liberal hawkishness. He, in his speech, he essentially did what Mr. Orban has done and made a, a, a kind of an intellectual argument for the West getting involved in Kosovo on, uh, against Serbia. And that became one of the intellectual foundations for future interventions in places like Afghanistan and Iraq, and indeed one might say Ukraine as well. And I think what Mr. Orban's done here is he might well have pulled off the same trick he might well have made this speech in Zurich might well go down for the autonomists, especially if they're successful in their battle against the Atlanticists. It might well go down as something akin to that 1999 Chicago speech where he makes the intellectual case for European strategic autonomy. I have not heard it made more clearly with more historical understanding or with more kind of intellectual force Perhaps Mr. Macron has done it. Emmanuel Macron is a very intelligent man as well, uh, and he has spoken quite eloquently in the past on the need for greater uh, European strategic autonomy. Uh, but I think this does it 
uh, better than anything I've ever heard. Holy Land Hotline. Regular listeners will be aware that uh, our short updates on the conflict between Israel and Gaza, or in Israel and Gaza, or Israel and Palestine, uh, have been very popular. We get great feedback on those emails, tweets, messages. So what we've decided to do is make it a regular feature. Who are we to deprive our listeners and subscribers of what they want? So what we're trying to do every week is give a brief update on a couple of news issues that we perhaps feel haven't cut through in the mainstream press a great deal, or as much as they should, and try to put them into context, not just within the regional conflict, but within the broader region and in terms of global geostrategy. So, Philip, what do we have this week? The first story is more interference with ships in the Red Sea off the coast of Yemen. The first thing to say is another ship was taken. We said, I think it was last week, that reporting on these issues is very confusing. And it probably, as we'll discuss, that's probably on purpose. I'm actually not sure if there's so far been three ships seized or four. I'm certain that there's been three. I'm, I've heard from one or two sources there might have been four. But let's go with three. The US Navy actually intervened this time. So what we noted when the first ship was seized, remember all this these seizures have only been a week and it's been three three ships. So even if it's three, it's a lot. The what we noted was that basically the Houthis, the Yemeni rebel group, the faction, the Houthis, had seized the first ship and and everyone was mum about it. The, it was an Israeli-owned ship. There was a lot of distracting uh, arguments about what that meant, and it was all kind of nonsense. But the real issue was that the, no one intervened on the. I think third ship that was seized, the US Navy did intervene and it took back control of this Israel linked carrier, tanker, sorry, Israel linked tanker. That's how the BBC is reporting it. The reporting in itself is kind of strange. So the, the, uh, the BBC report said a US Navy warship has captured armed men who seized an Israeli linked tanker off the coast of Yemen. As far as I understand it, they captured Houthi rebels. So it's not just our men could be pirates who are looking to steal the cash register or something. This, I do not think, was that. So there's still kind of a sense that they don't want to discuss the the, the situation, although they do later allude in the article that it is linked. <laughs> it's all very strange. After it was seized, the two missiles were actually fired at the U.S. naval warship afterwards, and the press reports said they missed. They may have missed, or it may have been using the old naval terminology, a shot across the bow. They could have been a provocation, actually. They could have been a, a signal that, okay, you can seize this one, but next time the missiles might not miss. We don't know, but two missiles were fired and they didn't hit the ship and they weren't intercepted. So people can take of that what they want. The, the response to this has been that on the first ship that the, that the Houthis seized, they did a social media video where they're dancing with rifles, which has been reported in Sky News. Again, somewhat strange reporting on this. It says the videos show men carrying Yemeni flags and rifles as they dance on top of the deck of the seized vessel. There are certainly rifles. There are certainly Yemeni flags. There are also Palestinian flags. So you, <laughs> they're literally in the photo underneath the headlines. Again... A kind of a, we don't really want to talk about it kind of situation. So yeah, so it seems like these these ship seizures just continue going. And obviously the US Navy has taken a stronger stance by seizing one, but you know, those two missiles were fired and um and it's all very tense. So I think I think our eyes should continue to be on the Red Sea, even though the media are, I'm not saying not reporting it, they are reporting these instances, but they're not giving them, I think, the full attention they deserve. And that's obviously, as we discussed last time, because the United States does not want to escalate the conflict. They, they don't want to advertise these stories because that would heighten the, the tensions in the region. You can almost feel the creeping involvement of the US, can't you? Kind of inches forward day by day while everybody is rightfully focused on the hope that can be found within the present ceasefire and the 
the hope I think everybody has that it will last for longer and it will be extended indefinitely. I think the far bigger story is the fact that the US Navy had to get involved to protect shipping through the Red uh, and actually got involved with capturing a Yemen, armed Yemenis who had initially seized an Israeli-owned, Israeli-linked, I think is the official terminology we're using. seems a bit slippery, but we'll go with it. An Israeli-linked ship in the first place. Like you say, what happens next? The Houthis, I guess, won't have the most advanced of uh, anti-shipping missiles. But I'll bet you they've got a few. I bet you they've got enough to do damage to a frigate or a destroyer. And as you say, what happens next time if? It's clear to me that most of the state actors involved in this, at least, don't want to escalate. Surely the US doesn't. You can almost feel the US desire. It's almost palpable on the air of every news report, on every press conference that comes out of Washington on the matter. You can almost kind of taste the desire for this all to be over. Um, It's causing real rifts domestically among the Democrat base. The last thing that Biden would want is to go into an election year with his Democrat base split or just disheartened or apathetic or angry even with the leadership for the Israel policy. And not only that, but the US has got bigger fish to fry at the moment. It's still extremely committed to the Ukraine conflict. And of course, it has the it has the, the 800-pound gorilla on the other side of the Pacific Ocean to deal with, which is its primary strategic threat. It doesn't need to be pouring huge amounts of weaponry and using up political capital for interventionism on, a, on another non-core regional conflict. And then on the other side, I think it's fair to say that the state actors, at least Iraq, Iran, Lebanon, have expressed a desire really not to escalate. That's different, though, with some of the armed groups and militias like uh, Hezbollah, like the two Iraqi groups, which essentially declared war on the US a few weeks ago. Listen to our special with Tinksorg on that. And also the Houthis in Yemen. And as they take bigger and bolder steps, it's going to be more and more difficult for the US not to get involved. We've already seen now they've got involved in having to rescue a ship that had been seized. Okay? What happens then if the Houthis shoot and a missile hits a US destroyer? What happens if the Houthis land on the next ship and they're better armed, for example, and they say no? Okay, what happens then? What happens if serious damage is done to a US ship? What happens if US service personnel die? It might be easy to cover up serious injuries and perhaps even deaths to US service personnel in bases in Iraq and northern Syria, but it's going to be much harder on a ship Okay, that limps into port damaged if that indeed happens. So I think that while everybody's focused on the ceasefire and the hope that's, that can be found in that ceasefire, the hope for peace that can be found in that ceasefire, I think we still need to be very much aware of the potential for escalation here because it's ever-present, and it feels that it's even more the case now than it was. And I think everybody's kind of gone the other way. They, they feel that things are kind of simmering down. They've got used to the actual war itself. They see the ceasefire. I really think that it's gone the opposite way. It's, it's kind of pushed a little bit farther toward broader escalation. Yeah, and I think this it. ceasefire thing has been much uh, misunderstood, actually. Um it's not a ceasefire, for one. It's a truce. And apparently, I'm told that there's a distinction here. A truce is genuinely what it sounds like. It's There's no formal legal agreement in place, and you basically just kind of wink at each other. It's a bit like when the Germans and the English played football in World War One. I'm not even sure if that's a, tr- a true story and an apocryphal one. But if it is true, that would be a truce. A ceasefire is formal and legal. So during a truce, anything can happen. During a ceasefire, there are at least nominally rules. And if you break those rules, all the third parties involved are going to be angry at you. So if it's a truce, then it will inevitably end. I mean, a truce is really just a cessation of hostilities for either for so that the two sides can regroup, or in this case, it looks like it's for hostage exchange. Now, of course, I'm sure the people who are, I'm sure the Americans, for example, who want this to end, as you said, 
um, want to try and extend the truce as much as possible and so on, and then hope it turns into a ceasefire. And that that's a possibility. But my understanding is that that is actually unlikely to happen. I'm not an expert in these matters. I'm not a diplomat or anything, and I've obviously never worked on anything in the Middle East. But my understanding is that this is actually a set, it will expire. It is really for the hostage negotiations. And the chance that it develops into an actual ceasefire is actually very low, if not non-existent. And then once the once the truth is off, it just continues to escalate again. I think the one glimmer of hope that it might develop into something is that the release of the hostages would generate some sort of goodwill on the part of the Israelis, I guess. I mean, I really think that was the idea here, that if the Israelis saw the hostages come out, um, they might not... Uh, a less aggressive posture might have been possible because the two goals here that the Israeli government have set themselves are number one, get the hostages, and number two, eliminate Hamas. Now, number one is a lot easier than number two, obviously. So I think there was some sense of that. But the uh, the statements that I read today, the Israeli government are still saying we our core goal is to eliminate Hamas. Now, the last thing I'd put there is that I think it was yesterday the Biden administration came out and said that said that they would much prefer to see moving forward that the Israelis stop indiscriminate military strikes, treating Gaza as a normal military target, and they said that they would like to see them to start start doing precision strikes. Now that may sound like jargon, but the reality is that there is absolutely no way in my mind that the Israelis can wipe out Hamas using only precision strikes. Precision strikes are for surgical operations. I mean, they're for, I wouldn't say assassinations, but like quasi-assassinations or taking out a, a certain group of militants in a certain area or taking out a convoy or something like that. You can't go after 30 to 40 to 50,000 fighters, most of whom are underground with precision strikes. That's not going to work. So that, that, that is definitely a sign that the US are putting pressure on for all the reasons that you said. But And perhaps that will change the game. We will see. I would say nobody knows at this stage, but I would just highlight that distinction between a truce and a ceasefire because when I read about it, I found that very interesting. I found it very helpful because in my mind, I wasn't sure if this was the, the beginning of something, something that would be more permanent. The President, Senator Helms, ladies and gentlemen, introduction left me a little bit in the position I was once at a reception where a lady came up to me and said I understand you are a fascinating man she said fascinate me <laughs> it, uh, it turned I tell you, it turned into one of the less successful conversations <laughs> that I have had. Now, I want to talk to you about the world in which America finds itself in the post-Cold War period. It is a perplexing world because we are fresh from a huge victory. 